0: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC.
1: With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption and logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on Logistics Insights at maersk.com slash insights. It's not about the corner office. It's not about the fancy title. It's not even about the extra money. Responsible leadership is about taking care of those who choose to follow you, and that care takes on many forms. This podcast is dedicated to bringing you the best guests, with the best advice to help you succeed in that endeavor. The Responsible Leadership Podcast is a production of The Leadership Phalanx. To find out more about me and what I do, visit leadershipphalanx.com. That's leadership, P-H-A-L-A-N-X.com. And now, on to today's show. The story of American business is the story of real estate, a story of more than 200 years of claiming, seizing, developing, settling, and speculating in vast areas of land. Even though business histories often give more attention to the history of the manufacturing industry, real estate has been the more dominant factor. That's just a paragraph of some of the words from today's guest, Mr. Richard Vague. Richard Vague serves as Pennsylvania Banking and Securities Secretary, Prior to his appointment in 2020, he was managing partner of Gabriel Investments and chair of the Governor's Woods Foundation, a nonprofit philanthropic organization. Previously, he was co-founder, chairman, and CEO of Energy Plus, an electricity and natural gas company. Vague was also co-founder and CEO of two banks and founder of the economic data service Tycos. His new book, and one we'll talk about a lot today, An Illustrated Business History of the United States, captures just that, a lot of the business history of the U.S., and he has a very unique perspective on that history, which I think you're going to enjoy quite a bit. We're also going to talk towards the end about his newest book, The Debt Jubilee, which gives us a very interesting idea of maybe how to deal with some of the debt crisis in in the United States. Uh, but you're going to enjoy this interview. We had a great discussion. I will let you know right now that we had some minor tech issues. We both had weather going through in our area when we were recording. So that played in a little bit here. So you may notice some minor glitches. I've tried to clean those up as much as possible, but please bear with us through that. Uh, but yeah, you're going to hear a great story from Richard Vague buckle in, get ready to get a copy of the book because you're going to want to have this book on your shelf just for the entertainment value of it. It's, it's that great. So join me in welcoming Richard Vague to the Responsible Leadership Podcast. Richard, thanks for being with us today.
0: Thank you very much for having me.
1: Yeah, no, I'm really looking forward to this. My listeners know that I'm a, I'm a big fan of history. Um, and as I mentioned in the pre-roll bio, uh, your book, An Illustrated Business History of the United States, like, this really just kind of rang out to me. As soon as uh, the folks over at C.S. Lewis Publicist sent this across, I was like, yes, this is something I'm going to enjoy talking about a lot. Uh, but before we dive into the book, let me start you off where I start off all of my guests. When you hear the phrase responsible leadership, what does that look like to you?
0: Uh, I think it means uh, leadership that balances the long-term with the short term and balances the broader interests with the narrow interests of whatever the enterprise is and is characterized by fairness.
1: Mm, I like that. I like that last word there, uh, fairness, uh, because I think that's something that, uh, that, that that's not a word that gets used as much as it should in leadership and business, right? Yep. So what, what sets you out to write this book? Like what was your kind of driving force behind uh, creating an illustrated history of business?
0: We do a lot of work. I personally do a lot of work on financial crises and that of course stems from the great 08 crisis we face, not to mention the one we're in right now, but, uh, I put together a a book on 200 years' worth of financial crises in the U.S. and other major countries around the world. And as I got back into the early part of America's history, I noticed there was really not much available in terms of information about early business history. And that was, I guess, a little surprising to me. You know, there's uh, copious amounts written about political and military history and even social history, but there was precious little that was written about business history, and of course, business is one of the main drivers of the success of the United States from its earliest days. So I made a middle note, you know, we had to do a lot of research just to reconstruct some of the early crises in American history, and we had many. We had our first one in 1792 and our second one in 1797, so... We had a lot, but right. you know, building the information around the personalities and the businesses became a passion.
1: Yeah, well, no, and I think that's a great point, right? Because uh, I think one thing that they kind of gloss over in, in a lot of history class, uh, at least you know, in, in Tennessee where I grew up, was uh, you know, th- this country pretty much always been in debt. I mean, we had a ton of debt after the Revolutionary War that we owed our allies and and folks who supplied us. And so, yeah, you're right. I mean, it it makes sense that we would, uh, that we should pay attention to businesses and financial crises, you know, from our inception even before. Uh, But until you, because you you wrote that kind of in the book and I was reading it, I was like, you know what? He's right. And so did you ever find a reason as to why we kind of glossed over that in history?
0: I think that debt is routinely overlooked even today. You know, private debt, by which I mean business and personal debt, you know, is not on policymakers' lips even now. And you know, it's all about the federal government debt, where in reality, small businesses struggle with debt, individuals struggle with, you know, whether it's health unexpected surprise medical bills or an old student loan they've never made, been able to pay off. That's been true all along. And, um, I think it's something that I'm trying to rectify at least a little bit, and I think you know there's a lot of excitement around you know a, a battle in a war, and may not be as much excitement in someone setting up shop next to a waterfall and powering a, a loom that makes clothes more cheaply. So you know, business history has perhaps always ended up with short shrift, even though it's been uh, central all along.
1: Well, yeah, again, and, and, you know, it's, it's very clear and hopefully folks go out and grab a copy of this book, especially if you're in business right now, because a lot of the stuff that Richard shares in this book, uh, you know, it's, it's the foundation of what your businesses look like today and why they look the way they look and, and, you know, how a lot of our, our industries got the way they, they were. But what I like is, is you, you start right off the bat with America's first business. And I'll be honest with you. When I first read that, I'm like, Huh. I have no clue what America's first business was. So, what was America's first business?
0: Real estate. Yeah. You know, and it continues to be one of our dominant businesses. But, you know, I start the book really before the Revolutionary War in 1748. Uh, A young 20 something named George Washington and his brothers and some other wealthy Virginians are trying to buy a parcel of 500,000 acres in the Ohio Valley, which, of course, is the West, and it's viewed as where America is heading and where wealth creation opportunities are. And it just goes from there. Major land purchases dominated American business early on. Robert Morris, who we know as the financier of the revolution, Uh, amassed 6 million acres of land right after the Constitution was established. Now, he did it all with debt. He got into a little trouble. But that was America's big business at the front.
1: Yeah. well, And and I think that's another thing, too. You talk about debt and and lending and all that. Those practices didn't look anywhere near the way they look today, right?
0: Well, one of the things that was true is Britain had effectively prohibited uh, the colonies from establishing a, their own banks. Uh, that wasn't entirely true, but it was largely true. And in part, that was because British merchants and lenders wanted to get all that business for themselves. So, you know, we kind of had to start from scratch in 1781 uh, and then again with our own first central bank in 1791. We just kind of had to make it up as we went along. And it was some time before the banking industry was robust enough to support uh, American industry.
1: Yeah. So, um, you know, and, and the other thing I like about the book is like you really don't shy away from the fact that, yes, early on in the country that that slavery was kind of. Uh, it, it was a big part of American business, and and I like you know some of the things that you you share in here uh, about that period of American history, and 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 uh, particularly you share a story about a, a a ship called the Sally, right? So could you kind of relay that a little bit?
0: Well, this was a great tragedy. This was one of the Rhode Island uh, uh, merchants who did regular participated in what was known as the triangular trade: slaves to the Caribbean, you know, sugar to United States and England, um, and this slave ship, uh, crashed and all the slaves aboard perished. So, uh, and that was not a rare occurrence, you know, uh, probably somewhere in the order of 20% of the slaves that embarked in Africa never disembarked, uh, at their destination. They perished along the way.
1: Yeah. And that's a, a staggering number to consider when we know how many slaves made it to the states. We know that not every slave made it here. Some of them were funneled into South America. Some of them stayed in the Caribbean, as you mentioned. Uh, but when you looked at 70 percent, I mean, that's that's just a staggering, a staggering number. And, and you know, it it, it, it was um, it was a dark period. Do you believe that America businesses would look like anything that they do right now without that trade?
0: Slavery, of course, was uh, central to the Southern economy, and the progress of the South would have been very different without it. But, you know, we estimate that the assets in the North at the time of the, the Civil War were about $10 billion, and in the South they were about $6 billion. But of that six, almost half or three billion was the value of the slaves. And what was further true is that uh there was debt used to purchase the slaves. So we estimate that maybe twenty percent of the value of the slaves were mortgages owed by slave owners. So it it, it helps explain uh the ultimately unexplainable uh Intransigence that the South had on the eve of the Civil War. If slaves had been freed, not only would there's three billion of their assets walked out the door, but they would have still owed what, let's call it $600 million on that slaves with no ability to repay. It's a tragic fact, but it, but it helps you understand the 1850s and 1860s.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, it, it really does. And that's one thing that I really liked about this book, and especially you talking about that that topic, right, is is you, you really do a good job, in my opinion, of telling history as it happened. And it's not a, a justification for what happened. It's not a condemnation of what happened. It's just it is what happened. Um, and, and I think those are conversations. And again, I really appreciate you kind of having it that way because, you know, these are the conversations that we really need to have right now so we can kind of, you know, heal from that period because, you know, we, we still haven't healed from it. Uh, we, we see that every day and, and it still impacts everything we do as a nation, right?
0: That's true. And, you know, one of the things we've tried to do in the book was to talk about the good and the bad. And I've spent much of my career In business, so I certainly have benefited from America's uh, democracy and free enterprise greatly personally. But I've seen a lot of misbehavior, you know, even in my career. And so I think it's if you're really going to have your eyes open about policymaking today and tomorrow, you have to understand the good and the bad.
1: Right. Well, yeah. I mean, because you know, those uh, some of these things that we talk about today. You talk about real estate, right? I'm, I'm always surprised how many people today that are in the real estate business that don't understand the concepts of of redlining and what that meant uh to to the country. Um, I actually just had this conversation maybe six months ago with a lady who was in the lending field uh in Colorado and started talking about this and she was like, this is the first time I've ever heard of that I wondered where some of these, uh, you know tables come from that we use to approve and disapprove folks and, and so yeah so this is a this is a great topic to really hit on in history and and uh, you know um, again i just want to say i uh, thank you for for tackling that in the book
0: well you know another uh, another story in that same vein is the, the developer abraham levitt and his sons who built you know some of the huge housing developments around New York, Philadelphia, and elsewhere, they were kind of mass producing the housing that accommodated uh, the baby boom. Uh, they they innovated in terms of building houses identical, so they could, in effect, mass produce them. At their peak, they were building one house every sixteen minutes. Mm. But the tragedy there is they precluded African Americans from buying those houses. There were as a clause. Where the only folks that could uh, buy their houses were quote members of the Caucasian race end quote so you know a, a tragic uh, note
1: yeah but that's kind of the story right I mean you talk in here about mass production in general and you know we we know about cars and, and things like that but uh, you know all of those things had some kind of disproportionate effect on. Well, I'll use the quote you used on people who were not of, uh, quote, the Caucasian race, right? Yeah.
0: Yeah.
1: So how how did we start, or, or well, let me ask you this question uh, a little bit differently. How or when did we start as businesses trying to rectify that situation, or have we?
0: You know, I think great strides uh, were made starting under uh, Lyndon Johnson um, in the 1960s, and you know what's what's notable about that is it comes a hundred years after the Civil War, because as we know, Reconstruction was not something the government followed through on, and Reconst- the attempts at Reconstruction uh, were effectively abandoned in 1877. So it took a long time, but I think great strides in civil ra- rights uh, came about in the nineteen sixties, and it's been it's been a, a, a good fight, and I think uh, a fight with progress ever since then. And we're certainly in the middle of another phase of that now, and I think it's a healthy and productive phase.
1: Yeah, no, I'll agree a hundred percent. You know, I've, I've chatted with some folks here in the past few. uh past few episodes that are in you know various HR fields. And, and the one thing that, uh, and I, I don't know if you've seen or heard any of this in, in your studies of, of kind of the recent history, but one thing that COVID kind of did was force people to realize maybe we can do more digitally and remotely than we thought and start to open up job prospects, you know, say, I was chatting with one who was talking about Google is now opening up job prospects to people who don't have to move to California. You can be in Jackson, Mississippi. You can be uh, in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. You can be in places like that and say, Hey, I work for Google now. And, and that's a kind of a, a, a very cutting edge revolution that hopefully will help even that playing field even more. Do you agree?
0: It's astonishing how much the pandemic has changed business practices um, and now that you know omicron notwithstanding you know there's been some reopening up there are a lot of folks uh, and there are a lot of situations where folks are not not going back to the old ways even though they could there's something about a zoom meeting that is actually better than meeting in person for, for certain not for all situations but for some. So I think, uh, uh the change, many of these changes will be permanent. And it reminds me of a gentleman named Bob Taylor who, uh, way back in the 1960s, as he was helping to invent the internet, ARPANET at that time, and the mouse, you know, which was this great innovation, wrote a paper, you know, way back, you know, 60 years ago now saying, uh, in the future, uh, humans will be able to communicate better by computer than face to face, and it was a broadly influential paper.
1: Yeah, and and here we are, and and it's true. Uh, so, um, well, let's let's back up here a second because you know one of the things that 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 again that I like about your book that you mentioned, and uh, I'll be honest with you, I'm I'm uh, have you ever watched the I've started calling it the "That Built America" series that the History Channel does. Yep. Yeah. So they they share a lot of good stories on there, and um, you know some of them are obviously a little bit embellished for for TV and ratings. But the one thing that I noticed is kind of a theme going through this book, reading some of the stories, and and watching that show very avidly is that a lot of these great inventions and 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 things that we take as commonplace today you know, it was really, I don't want to say by accident, but it was, there were a lot of things that were driven. Well, necessity being the mother of invention. Right. Uh, and, and so that theme through history, how does that play through? Cause we just talked about COVID a little bit, but how's that play through for modern businesses today? Where getting pushed is the best thing that can happen for you.
0: Well, another way to think about that is, is really the fact that crisis breeds opportunity. Right. And, you know, if there's anything that that we know by looking back at history is, you know, I, kept, I laid this all out in a timeline and I kept looking for those periods in which there wasn't a crisis. And believe me, they are few and far between. You know, we have a crisis, uh, it seems every 10 or 20 years. And that's been true for 250 years. And that's, war, that's obviously disease in the case of COVID, that's financial crisis in the case of 2008. Uh, you know, it's its always something. And, you know, you can either wave the white flag and, you know, say, woe, is me, or you can seize upon those moments as opportunities to, to innovate, progress. Uh, and it's the companies that come out on the other side of that crisis Having held their company together, uh, that thrive.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, and those opportunities, right? Being, being nimble about finding those opportunities. Like, uh, and please correct me if I get any of this wrong, but if I, if I understood kind of one of the untold stories of, of Henry Ford and the internal combustion engine was trying to find an affordable fuel source because kerosene was like king at the time and it was fairly expensive. But there was this kind of byproduct of the kerosene process called gasoline that was essentially they were burning it off. And and Henry's like, hey, maybe I can use that. And that's essentially by having his eyes open for those opportunities, as you mentioned, that's kind of how he started the Ford Motor Company. and, And the success we know today is the gasoline internal combustion engine. Uh, does that sound fairly accurate or did I miss that whole story? Well, absolutely.
0: Up? You know, and, 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 what you're, what you're saying is it takes innovation across multiple fronts, uh, for something like the Ford Motor Company to happen. So it was not just what you mentioned, but it was the fact that somewhere else people were inventing better and cheaper ways to make steel and, uh, you know, the Goodyear is inventing the rubber tire and, Unless you had all those inventions happening uh, and available uh, to uh, Henry Ford, you wouldn't have had the Model T and the success of that company. Or you, you take uh, someone like uh, Steve Jobs and the iPhone, you know, that all the ingredients, you know, had been invented by others and had come up through other channels. And what he really did is kind of what Henry Ford did was pull them all together to create a product that unified uh, a lot of the inventions that that others had brought forward.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, because you think about it, uh, before the uh, before the iPhone, like you mentioned, we had people uh, carrying around cameras. People were carrying around cell phones. existed People were carrying around MP3 players. Uh, people were carrying around specific devices for text messaging. And like you said, he combined all that, and, and people laughed at him for it. They said, like, oh, there's no way people are going to buy something that does all of that. And now, you know, we're really, what, seriously, we're, what, maybe 14, 15 years into the iPhone era? And find somebody that doesn't have a smartphone, right?
0: Yeah. It's the dominant artifact on the planet.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's it's crazy. So um, one of the other things I wanted to kind of chat with you about, because, you know, I have a background in in uh, the Marine Corps and you touched again on military history. We write a lot about it, but uh, you talk again, I do a fantastic job of laying out in this. Military operations and businesses have really ran hand in hand since the founding of, of the nation, right?
0: That's absolutely right. You know, it's uh, in the case of the American Revolution itself, the, the government had to go out and, you know, the government fragile as it was, the manufacturing industry in the United States was even more fragile. And the government had to go out and help manufacturers learn this new art of interchangeable parts and help finance many of those operations so they could have weapons for the fight. And then you come to, something like World War II, and you had uh, FDR appointing a gentleman named Vannevar Bush, who I think is one of the heroes of business in the 20th century. And he started a company called Raytheon, but uh, FDR needs for him to pull together a bunch of scientists and accelerate the development of the various war technologies. And, you know, I can't remember, I think it, he may have had 3,000, uh, PhD-level scientists working for them at that time, and that led to the National Science Foundation, which of course has contributed mightily to the progress of business. So war, as heartbreaking and tragic as it is, uh, accelerates technology, uh, and we've seen giant leaps in technology with each war in American history.
1: Yeah, 100%. And that's, you know, that's one thing we, when we talk about like, uh, Department of Defense budgets and things like that is, uh, the, the, the amount of money in that that goes to, uh, that, that goes to DAR, uh, DARPA, the defense, uh, uh, arm that does a lot of these, the, the testing and, and technology. Um, yeah, you're right. I mean, we see these things in robotics today. Like, for instance, uh, people are always, enamored when the new uh, Boston Scientific uh, comes out with, you know, their dancing robots. Well, yeah, I mean, like you just said, a lot of that is a result of, you know, the the global war on terror and advances in robotics. Um, Look at um, prosthetics. Uh, You know, I I, I have a friend, uh, you know, he was uh, combat wounded and he said uh, you know he goes when we were first going over there he goes you know people would just have like a shred of of skin keeping their leg on and they're like doc do whatever you can to save the leg he goes now prosthetics have gotten so good he goes somebody stumps their toe and they're like doc just take it off and give me one of them bionic jobs uh you know because but but that's kind of what you're talking about here is is that that connection and the driving of of te- technological development but it's not all roses and sunshine, is it?
0: No, I mean, war is obviously very, very destructive. You know, the great advantage the United States has had is that most of its wars, not all of them, but most of them have been fought overseas. We we don't see the destruction of physical assets, farmland, and and civilian carnage that others have seen. So war, War has obviously its tragic side, but
1: like you say, another great
0: example of the contribution of military spending, uh, to businesses, uh, the microchip. You know, the microchips were basically unaffordable, uh, to regular business. And then the military spending on things like Apollo and the Minuteman missile and others in the sixties create enough scale where the microchip, I can't remember the exact numbers, but went from, you know, $20 a chip down to a dollar a chip just from the scale of uh, military spending around that and then became widely available for commercial applications like the computers we use today. Yep.
1: So at the beginning of our conversation, you mentioned that, you know, you kind of really focus on, on financial crises. And, uh, you know, the one thing that I've noticed, and again, I'm a complete layman when it comes to this, I'm on the outside looking in, but uh, modern businesses with the, the push to, to digitize everything with all the benefits that it has, they also make us very vulnerable to these types of crises, right?
0: You know, the the cybercrime and the level of cyber cybercrime and the sophistication of cybercrime is just shocking. You know, if you go into you know a bank today and you ask their IT department how many times you know, a month or a year or a day, they get attacked. And it's the answer is hundreds of times a minute. Right. Um, you know, and so, uh, the, the war to protect the cyber war to protect, you know, our personal data and our personal computer security is one that's raging right now. It's, the outcome is up for grabs.
1: Yeah. Well, and, and, you know, even that, you know, like there was the infamous before he actually passed away uh, the, the kind of the hoax that Steve jobs passed away and then Apple stock tanks and just an in instance, billions of dollars are, are uh, wiped away. Um, and then what was the other one? It was shortly after that. Uh, I, if I remember right, the story was a, a trader uh, accidentally sold Meant to sell like a million shares of a stock and sold like a billion instead, and it created a whole thing where the the markets panicked and and I can't remember how many hundreds of billions of dollars were wiped out by that. But that was just a a a, a mistype of of a keyboard. Right. How how can we even as the small business, as you mentioned, these you know these folks are susceptible as well. How can we, as business owners, being responsible for the folks that work for us, understanding the history of business, understanding where we came from, where we're going, what can we do to kind of shield ourselves as much as possible from these crises?
0: Well, if you're talking about a computer crisis, I think the answer is pretty straightforward. Um, And and there are lots of services, uh, lots of vendors that will provide protection None of them provide complete, perfect protection. Uh, there are lots of policies and procedures and habits we can develop, uh, that provide protection. So I think, you know, people need to invest a lot more time than they currently are in understanding the issues and the vendors and the, and the policy. But if you're talking bigger than that, if you're talking about a financial crisis or a pandemic or something like that, I, I, I think. There what we need to learn, and we talked about this a few minutes ago in this interview, what we need to know is that it the path is never rosy for more than a few years. There's always danger around the corner. And being prepared for your own life uh, for that, you know, I can't tell you how many folks I've encountered that say, you know, I never thought such and such would ever happen. Well, start thinking about it, you know. You know, yeah you see you, you need to think of all the, the things that can happen that aren't good and you need to be, have at least some preparedness for those things you don't need to be a, the kind of naive person that says I never dreamed uh, I never thought I never imagined that something this bad would happen be ready yeah. there's certain things you can do financially and otherwise uh to to be prepared that I think a lot of folks don't take the time to do it.
1: Yeah, no, I agree a hundred percent. You know, I was a, a federal employee during the big, uh, you know, 35 day shutdown. And, you know, I saw a lot of folks panic during that and, you know, cause they weren't prepared. And, and, you know, everybody always had this idea that being a federal employee was, you know, that was one of the most stable jobs you can get. There's all these perks. It's, it's all this. And, you know, that really woke a lot of people up. I and mean, we had other shutdowns that lasted shorter periods of time, but that one really put a jolt in a lot of people. And, and I'll tell you what's interesting, and, and I haven't been able to find these numbers, but I know uh, after that, there was a lot of federal employees that started looking for private sector jobs. And, and I think that's maybe one of the kind of unintended consequences of uh, not being prepared for these types of crises is it really makes you feel uncomfortable and, and, and puts you in that kind of uh, crisis recovery. And, and as we talked about earlier, looking for opportunities mode, right?
0: That's right. It's, it's seeing federal government employees in bread lines or food lines was, was sobering and shocking. And, you know, with the, with the way things are in Washington DC right now, that's, it's not out of the question that that would happen again. So preparedness is thinking about the unthinkable. It's not something we should do all the time, but it's something we should do some of the time. Yeah.
1: So speaking of, of thinking of the unthinkable, uh, we again talking about crises and all that, and, and we see some of these numbers, right? And it, it seems like uh, the, the numbers themselves, as far as the digits don't necessarily change, but it seems like, uh, the, the, the first letter is always one. like, I remember growing up, like whenever somebody was talking about millions of dollars, like that was big bucks. And now we throw around millions, like, like pennies and I'm talking business, not me personally. I wish. Right. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, and then billions became a thing. And the first time we started talking about billions, uh, it was like, oh man, I can't believe we're talking about numbers in the bill, but now we're talking, like for the national debt 23 plus trillion dollars maybe it's even more than that now since we've been talking like those numbers are are kind of unimaginable like the idea of 23 plus trillion dollars as debt like d- does that much money actually exist
0: no uh, absolutely you know that uh i think the uh The global economy as a whole, uh, my numbers are going to be dated, you know, is, you know, well over a hundred trillion and the amount of debt globally is, you know, something on the order of 350 to 400 trillion. And, uh, that's government and private sector debt. So those numbers are absolutely real. You know, we have certain of our, um, our businesses in the United States whose the stock market value is a trillion. I think uh, uh, the Tesla, you know, which is still relatively small in terms of number of sales, uh, its stock market value, nevertheless, has has touched a trillion. So a trillion is a real amount. It's it's where the world is now.
1: Yeah. Well, I guess uh, you know my my thing is like when we look at this, like again, layman uh, looking in, it's like. Is there a, a, a path, and, and I'm maybe putting you on a spot here a little bit, but I know we got to think about debt differently at that level. But is there even a path to paying off that much debt for, for a country like ours? Or, or is it just something we got to live with? <laughs>
0: so it's actually a subject I uh, think about quite a bit. I actually have a new book that's just out in December of this year. Call, uh, the case for a debt jubilee that you probably won't have time to get into today, but tries to address that very subject, both, both as it relates to private sector debt, which I view as the more important subject and government debt. And one of the things I'm going to tell you is in, uh, this is in countries that have monetary sovereignty, which is, you know, ourselves, Japan, China, uh, the EU does not have monetary sovereignty in those countries because they created a common uh, currency. So they've got a different set of problems. But for a country that has monetary sovereignty, it creates the deposits that it uses to finance its own debt. So it can never run out of money. There's, there's really, uh, very little concern, uh, that, that I personally have about that debt level we the private debt lo- number is a lot higher. The private debt number is, you know, close to uh 60 trade. Uh, excuse me, 35 or 40 trade. Oh wow. So I worry a lot about small business debt and healthcare debt and student debt. I don't worry about as much about uh, the government debt because the government could create its own money. I also in that book outlined some, some methods. I think that the, Government could finance its debt differently, which would uh, would alleviate some of the pressure. Uh, so I think there are solutions.
1: Okay, well, yeah, and, and uh, actually, that's a staggering number. I'd, I'd never heard that. To think that the the private debt is that much more uh, than the national debt because that's the number we always kind of see and and panic about. But to to hear the private debt, I mean, I guess it kind of makes sense. You got three hundred thirty million more people in debt than one government. So. Uh, right. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's for, well, you know, we do have a a, a little bit of time here. So let's, let's kind of, if you want to talk about debt Jubilee real quick. So, um, you know, folks, I'm, I'm, you know, you've heard us talk about an illustrated, uh, business history of the United States. And, and I highly encourage you to go grab a copy. If you, if you like history, um, you, this thing is just, it's, it's a beautiful book. I love the illustrations that you got in here. Um, like, like this is. This is one of my favorite books that I have sitting on my shelf right now, if nothing else, for the aesthetics. So uh, thank you for putting it together as well as you did.
0: Well, you're you're too kind, and it's a privilege to be on your show. And I'll say that particular book is designed
1: to sample.
0: You know, we 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 don't expect folks to take that book and read it from cover to cover. Instead, it's divided into 14 chapters, which represent 14 different business eras. So if your particular interest is the 1960s, go to that chapter. If, you, if you're interested in Great Depression, go to that chapter. Uh, if you're interested in, in, in you know, the, the age of the Internet, go to that chapter. And You can browse. We put in lists. We put in little vignette stories. Uh, it's meant to be a fun book.
1: Yeah. No, it is. It is. And again, um, you know, it's kind of one of the reasons why I brought him up. If you're a fan yeah. of History Channel's the that built america series whether it's cars food whatever this is this is going to be a great book for you so you know definitely grab a copy but uh yeah so let's talk just a couple of minutes uh you know like you said we don't have time to get into it in in depth like we did uh the first book but yeah let's talk about debt jubilee here because as you said it's it's coming out uh in december so it's relatively fresh hot off the presses um like if you got a couple minutes like what is that book about and, and why should people grab a copy of that one
0: well, one of the things that I've noticed, and I've been studying this for for a long time now, probably getting on to 15 years, uh, really since uh, the 07-08 crisis, uh, and intensely studying the subject of debt. And one of the things you learn when you study it, not just in the United States, but globally, is that debt always grows in proportion to a country's economy, to a higher and higher level. And, for example, private sector debt, we all know the government debt story pretty well, but private sector debt in the United States in 1950 was about 50% of GDP. Today, it's triple that level. It's almost 160% mm-hmm. of GDP. That's mortgages and student loans and healthcare loans and, uh, all the rest. And as it increases, it burdens an economy. You know, pandemic aside, we were all, all wondering, you know, why it was that we couldn't return to vigorous growth in uh, the 10 years after the Great Recession. Well, one of the reasons was we still had all that debt or almost all that debt we'd accumulated during that period. And so my book, addresses that squarely, talks about why it's true and what we can do about it at several levels. The other thing that I bring into it is something that was a extraordinary discovery on my part. Maybe you and your listeners already knew this, but it turns out that ancient societies, Egypt and Babylon and any number of others, had massive debt in each of those civilizations. And it was not government debt. It was individual debt. It was the debt of the farmer to buy the farmland and the supplies. It was that kind of debt. And that, and their debt too always grew and reached levels where it crippled society. And what would happen is the kings in that era would often proclaim debt amnesty. They would forgive all the debt of the people in the society. Uh, Not the big business death, as it turned out, but the, the individual farmer death. And these were amazing proclamations, and they happened dozens and dozens of times in ancient history. And in Israel, they actually took it out of the realm of the king's whims and codified it into law and called it Jubilee. And it happened in the year after seven cycles of seven years in which that was forgiven. And, and so it's, it's a fascinating, uh, way of saying this has been a problem with civilization since the very beginning. And unless we build in mechanisms to address debt, uh, you know, we're going to have, uh, pressure and, and, uh, crisis and, and burdensome levels of debt that slow an economy. That's kind of what that book's about. Hmm.
1: No, that's very interesting. I, I, I you know, ha, I didn't know that. Uh, maybe some of my listeners did because I got some listeners that are, are way smarter than I am. Uh, but, uh, no, I, I'm looking forward to, to reading it. And then, I mean, it sounds very interesting. Sounds like a, you know, uh, I hate to say radical take, because as you pointed out, we've done it through history, so it shouldn't be that radical. But, uh, you know, I, I can see the I can already hear the the wailing and gnashing of teeth uh, at just <laughs> you saying the words debt amnesty. So. Uh, but, yeah,
0: well, well I try to put, put forward a reasonable approach to it. So, yeah,
1: <laughs> well, no. Good. Good. No, I can't wait. Like I said, I can't wait to, to grab a copy and, and read to myself and listeners. If that's your sort of thing, make sure you grab a copy, too, and, and uh, support Richard here and, and uh, educate yourself a little bit more about uh, American uh, business history. And it sounds like in uh, a case for a debt jubilee, uh, global business history a little bit. Um, you know, Richard, I know we had a couple of de- uh, technical difficulties there. And, and you know, listeners, thanks for sticking with us through all that. Um, we've sat in probably around 45 minutes or so right now. We covered a lot. Is there anything that we didn't get a chance to cover uh, that you'd like to leave listeners
0: with? Well, I'd like to say two things. First of all, I'd like to thank you for your service. No mm, so pleasure. What, keep, what keeps us safe is folks like you, and I'm personally very, very grateful. And the second thing I'd like to say is how terrific your show is and what a privilege it is to be part of it. Hmm.
1: Well, thank you very much for those kind words. It's, it's my pleasure on both accounts. This has been a great conversation. Um, if people do want to find out more about, about you, your books, your services, uh, w- what is a good place for them to find out more about Richard Vague?
0: Well, you can go to my website, which is richardvague.com. Uh, Richard V is in Victor, A-G-U-E.com. And Uh, the the books and other items will be
1: there. Love it. And listeners, you know, the drill, we'll have those in the show notes. So you can go uh, and get there nice and easy. Um, Again, I just want to recommend uh, both of these books. Uh, I I can say from personal experience "An illustrated business history of the United States is fantastic Uh, case for debt. Jubilee sounds like it's going to be amazing as well. Uh, Richard, again, thank you very much for being with me and my listeners and having this outstanding conversation with us on the Responsible Leadership Podcast.
0: Uh, I'm grateful to be with you. Thank you.
1: Well, all right, folks, there you have it. Another great show about responsible leadership. I really appreciate you listening. And if you have any feedback for me, please reach out at Earl at LeadershipFalanx.com. That's E-A-R-L at leadership, P-H-A-L-A-N-X dot com. Thank you for rating, reviewing, subscribing, and sharing the show so these messages can spread further and make a bigger impact. With that, I look forward to speaking with you again in the next episode. Cast.